This is Beyond the Pass, conversations with people from all walks of hospitality life. Centering mental health, Beyond the Pass is a conversation about life, hospitality, and what makes us get out of bed each day. Beyond the Pass is brought to you by Kelly's Cause, and the conversational digressions are brought to you by me, your host, Rachel Kerlapsley. If you can take a minute to like, rate, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, that would be very much appreciated. Without listeners like yourselves, we could keep having these brilliant conversations. Enjoy the episode and keep taking care of each other. Welcome back to Beyond the Pass. Today we're sitting down with the marvelous Shell Regini. Shell is a hospitality pro and the founder of We Recover Loudly, which centers conversations around addiction and recovery for folks in the hospitality industry, providing training, support, and resources. Welcome, Shell. Hi, how are you? I'm good. I'm, I'm really excited to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time. I'm really curious just sort of about your origin story. How did you get started in hospitality? Why did you find yourself in that industry? So um, anybody who's around my age will be familiar with Buffy the Vampire Slayer and how each (laughs) generation one is chosen and um, that is very much the fact in the Regini family every generation one is chosen to work in the hospitality industry and it's been that way since the dawn of time Um, the dawn of time there was actually probably more of us in the industry than there is now it's now falling on the shoulders of the single Um, so yeah we grew up um, my this is my dad's side of the family my dad's Fathers, fathers, fathers were chefs um, over in Italy working for the Italian royal family. My dad's dad, so my grandfather, who I sadly never met, um, he was a chef um, at the Ritz, the Savoy. He worked with the Scoffier. He was a one of those kind of chefs, you know, with the big tall white hats. And, <laughs> um, and then they moved over to South Africa, which is where I was actually born. Um, he had his own restaurant called Fijiji's, which was a little Italian restaurant with a, you know, when they have the menu and it's like the same thickness of an encyclopedia because you can have veal, miliana, veal this, veal that, veal this, you know, like veal every way apart from, you know, alive. And my uh, he worked there. Um, my dad then started in that kitchen and it just kind of all kind of continued. Um, we came back over to this country when I was about three years old. And my dad then worked in contract catering, which is, I don't know, I was going to say slightly fancier catering. I suppose it's not. He wore a suit rather than chef whites, let's say. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, so working within the industry has always been something that we have had a massive awareness of. Um, The difference being that when I grew up, I had that more corporate side of hospitality. You know, like I say, my dad wore a suit and stuff like that. So for me hospitality always felt very magical like this magical world and because obviously my dad said you should never work in hospitality as dads do it made it all the more appealing and I was all the more determined to do it and uh, yeah so once I you know got my degree and got my master's I decided to be a waitress (laughs) you know (laughs) and um, was very lucky to work for some absolutely incredible brands in London and um, my my love affair, my intoxication with all that is hospitality began pretty much from the moment I stepped into that training room um, for that first restaurant group. And uh, like all love affairs, it's had its ups and downs. There's been heartbreak. There's been cheating. There's been, you know, despair. Um, but there's also been 
highlights of unimaginable joy and experiences not to be matched with anything else. So it truly has been an exceptional way to spend a career which I think I've still got 20 years or so left of, <laughs> frustratingly. <laughs> I wonder, because there was such a legacy of it in your family, were you always certain from the beginning, from that first job, that you wanted it to be your career? Or had you originally sort of thought of it as a sort of stopgap on your way? I, again, much to the dissatisfaction initially of family, because my dad has a very big awareness of how hard the industry was, you know, his upbringing was very challenging because of the fact that his father worked in the industry in as much as his dad was always working. Money could sometimes be very tight. You know, his father died in the kitchen of a heart attack. You know, it was very much not something that he was like, sure, off you chat, off you go. Um, and because of that, though, I don't know what, I always still felt like this real need to connect with my past heritage. I think there's something to do with being somebody who moved to a country very young, um, especially in the 80s when, you know, London, the UK potentially wasn't quite as cosmopolitan and as, you know, um, what do we call it, a lovely melting pot of cultures as it is. It was very difficult for me to connect with British culture, to connect with being British because I had no family over here. I still don't really. Um, you know, I didn't have a granny. I didn't have aunties. Um, you know, me and my family, we spoke differently. So I was always been my entire life desperate to connect with identity, heritage and stuff like that. And I think for me, I, I have this inner need to feel like a part of my heritage by coming into hospitality it then made me feel connected in a way to my family that I wasn't able to as well because like I said you know my grandfather my grandmother they died way before I was born you know this it would never have worked out that we would have met but the thing that I did want to do though is have a little part of the industry that was mine and that's when I started working in the bar side because we've never really had anybody specializing in um, in wines or mixology or anything like that so that kind of became my own little corner of the hospitality world which um which was great and when you started like in those first couple of years or even before because of your experience with your family what was your awareness or was there an awareness of how addiction and substance misuse sort of functioned in the industry just in those early days when i my very first job um, as an intern was at a live music event uh, event space and art gallery in Camden, which I've probably just basically named it without naming it. And um, it was, I was the PR and events intern, which meant that I just took email addresses on the front door and things like that and how, held the guest list and stuff. And that was my first experience of hospitality and immediately it was all about drinking drug taking partying we were a collection of I I could liken us the people who worked there to a little bit like either like the lost boys or you know like Fagin um in Oliver Twist and he has all of those rabble and you know they all sleep on top of each other and they wake up and they eat gin drink gin and eat sausages and go back out and that was literally what it was like working there we were all so integrated within each other's life and alcohol and drugs were the things that fueled that and it was this incredibly 
dysfunctional family of just like immediate connection that I don't think necessarily would have happened had it not been for drinking and drugs. I at the time didn't particularly partake because I was a little bit like big eyed and girl in the city and all of that but it was intoxicating from afar and the freedom with which the people were enjoying each other's company and the the comfort they looked like they well the comfort that I they looked like they had in themselves and in their identities was again something that for someone who has been very disconnected from an identity her whole child like growing up it was really appealing um so I don't remember working in the industry really where that wasn't a complete, I wouldn't even say background, but a complete, you know, corresponding narrative to the day-to-day work. It's also interesting because when, particularly when you first come into the industry, you tend to be quite young. And so the way that people were like drinking and doing drugs in those jobs when you're like 18, 19, 20, whatever, it's not that dissimilar to folks that are that age just in the world, particularly in big cities, although I'm sure people get shit-faced everywhere. Um, but I don't think it feels that distinct almost at that age. And I think you touch on something so interesting, which is that um, gaining community and gaining connection and how so often the folks that really prosper are folks that really want that sense of belonging because they didn't have it, whether that's because of immigration or the situation in their families or whatever the case might be, or just because they were like weird growing up or like struggled in school or whatever. And when that, when the place you feel the most at home is also a place where if you're an addict, access is very, very easy. It can, it's so obvious that the outcome becomes folks battling addiction. Oh, 100%. It's, you know, the way that, the way that we currently still look at addiction in our industry on the whole is with a big surprised gasp when it happens. No, no, not again. Oh, Jimmy, if only you had spoken to someone and you're just like, but we need to start looking at it from that front end and realise exactly that our industry and just side note, I I personally think spending your early 20s messing around and finding yourself and getting hedonistic and all of that, if it works for you, if it's safe, crack on. I had brilliant times. I still to this day can remember the jump, you know, being on rooftops and watching the sun come up and sitting on Primrose Hill and playing the drum and drinking, um, like, I don't know whose drum it was, and drinking... um, wine you know from a box but we'd taken it out of the box and we were calling it astronaut wine because it's in a silver bag and you know just like the 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 absolute debauchery but also you're a kid and it doesn't matter and it's okay and you know like I just want to put aside there that that's also not suggesting that you have to go out and do it but let's be clear you know there were some really amazing amazing times but what we have as an industry is we have the people that kind of come into our industry, and I know this is a sweeping statement, yet there is data to back this up, are normally people exactly as you've explained there, you know, people who haven't got on necessarily traditional education or were the weird kid or have come from a slightly, you know, more dysfunctional background because we as an industry embrace that. We say, you're the weird kid. You've not had the most traditional upbringing. You've not had the best time at school. 
that's why we like you. Come on in. So we're a really great safe space as an industry for people like that. However, we do not then safeguard for the type the people that we invite. And the second challenge, which I think is becoming more apparent and something that I'm going to be doing a lot more work with in the new year is people with neurodiversity. So my ADHD coach um, said that um, it's in the top five industries um, for people with neurodiversity is hospitality, um, as alongside the police, the emergency services, you know, the military. And it's interesting that you're, the other industries that we're talking about are industries where life and death um, are, are, are a daily basis. And otherwise, we've got hospitality where it's food. But when you work in hospitality, so, it so is really, really stressful, it. but really, really organized. It makes loads oh, of yeah. sense to me. Like... Oh, yeah. And it feels like life and death sometimes in the restaurant. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we have a community of people coming in with neurodiversity, again, that we're all now still now go, oh, no, wait, hang on. you. I mean, I can't count the amount of people that have popped up from my past going, me too, me too. People with neurodiversity spend their entire lives, either when diagnosed or not, thinking that they're wrong, that they are categorically wrong. They suffer from something, or we do, sorry, I should say, because I was diagnosed last year, unless that's not obvious. Um, We suffer from something called um, rejection sensitivity disorder, which means that you can say one bad thing to me and 50 other great things, and I won't hear that. I will just hear the one bad thing, and I will go home, and I will mull it over, and it will, by the time I get home, have turned from you maybe saying something like, Shell, do you mind just not getting in my section, please? Or just something like that, you know, like, Shell, I've got my section, can you just do that? To me going home and thinking, Rachel hates me. She wishes I didn't work there. She wishes I was probably dead. Maybe I should be dead. Maybe I should leave. Maybe I should quit. That's when the drinking and the drugs come in. Now, if we've kind of now established that not only are people who have had those kind of more abject um, childhood experiences potentially in our industry, add that in now, neurodiversity, add into that access to um, alcohol and drugs and a culture that not only promotes it, but celebrates it. And yet again, we've got Shell there addicted losing her job and the industry going oh well she should have had a bit of personal responsibility and for me that I think is going to be the biggest I'm hoping the biggest thing that we start to see a change in in our industry is rather than trying to backtrack it's let's put these things in place from the very beginning let's stop being surprised when these things happen and let's figure out what we can do to make it a safe space for everybody regardless of who you are you know particularly when you were deeper in addiction and correct me if I'm wrong because you have spoken about sort of your story around getting sober um you lost your job you got fired and then you got sober after that were you back in bars and restaurants in early sobriety or were you out of those spaces you were yeah I was I um I lost my job um which I've shared about before I lost my job um just after COVID year one so November 2020 and I was heartbroken because the person that um that fired me was completely within his right to do so. I was completely um, 
uh, inconsistent. I had created situations within work wherein that my moods and my ability to do my job were just completely not there. And there was no, I was damaging the company. However, this person was somebody that I would drink after work with, you know, that I would pour drinks for, you know, that we had been there for each other in the trenches and it broke my heart to be ejected from a job by somebody that I had felt we had done the same. However, <laughs> I had obviously very much taken it too far and um, completely agree <laughs> in hindsight with what he did. Um, and we're very good friends still. Um, I did then try to get a job out of the industry. Um, it was really hard to find one in the industry anyway, because obviously restaurants and that were locked down. But I did end up getting another job in a kind of cafe deli um, environment um, in early sobriety where there was alcohol around and I was expecting I kind of, I, I, I hid that. I hid my sobriety. I was so ashamed of it. Um, I hid it to the point that I was even making cocktail menus and I was even coming up with drinks and I was able to do it because I knew how. Um, but there was so much shame in just been saying like, actually, do you know what? I don't actually drink. I'm happy to help and assist. But if you want you know, if you want someone to taste this, someone else is going to have to, because I thought I would probably get fired if I admitted it. That was a massive part. Um, and then I eventually, I, I, I got diagnosed with something called fibromyalgia, which was another uh, consequence of the intensity of work that I did during COVID, um, as well as the previous kind of 15 years, my body just said, we're done. We're absolutely done. And fibromyalgia, it's a, it's a chronic pain condition. And it means that I am constantly in a lot of muscular pain and I um, am very tired. So basically my my normal state is kind of like, you know, how you feel after like three or four 16 hour shifts in the row and, you know, at least one bottle of wine each night. That's just my normal Monday state. It means sadly I can't work in restaurants and bars anymore, but um, which is sad because I'd love to. I'd love to see if I... I reckon I'd be really good at my job now. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Weirdly enough, <laughs> given the chance. What sort of advice would you give other folks who might be in sort of those early stages of recovery, still working in restaurants, still working in bars, hotels, around keeping themselves safe? it's it is difficult and I can't just like go like oh guys well just you know let your boss know it really is difficult that's why we started um we recover loudly that's why it's called we recover loudly it's calling it's a call to action for people who are in recovery in the industry and who are in a place of safety confidence um you know that kind of they feel that they can have the ability to share their story in a way that there won't be a repercussion. That's why I'm kind of calling to them to stand up and be those role models. The more people that do that, the easier I think it is to have these conversations. However, if you're that person right now and there isn't somebody safe that you feel that you can talk to within your workspace, which in itself is very sad because you should be able to go to your line manager, to your HR, to your ops, and say, look, I'm really struggling and I'm trying to stop. And they should be able to respond and go, 
I'm really, really grateful that you've come to me. Here is an EAP program. Here is what I can do to support you. Here are resources and stuff like that. All of these things of which um, is something that I now offer as a consultancy and training and other things that we can talk about after. Um, but I think the biggest thing is to commit, connect with a community. Um, so there are many communities out there that can support you on your sobriety journey on your, and, um, they can go from AA from child step programs to smart recovery to connecting with something that's not, I was going to say not as intense, but I mean, AA is as intense as you want it to be. Um, I have a friend called Hannah, who is the owner of the sober butterfly collective. Uh, they organize sober meetups. There are lots of little communities popping up. There's the uh, the guys behind the Dry App, which is an amazing one. There's One Year No Beer. There are lots of little communities. Recovolution is another one. Find a community that connects, that you can connect with. And that peer-to-peer -peer support, I think, is one of the most important things. Um, there are also meetings now which are specific to hospitality and we'll be also starting We Recover Loudly meetings by the end of the year which that's amazing yeah well there's style so ben's friends which is an american organization who i absolutely love and you can go on their meetings um in the uk there's one that's at one um it works out to be about 6 p.m every day here um where you can go on and you can share about the fact that not only are you early in recovery or wherever you are in recovery but that you also work in hospitality and it's just so incredible to have the combination of experiences because I can remember in early recovery being in these rooms and hearing other people's stories and thinking they're not an alcoholic they just work in hospitality like that's nothing that's just Monday like you know and I think especially in our industry you spend a long time deciding whether or not you've got a drink problem because you're not doing anything different to you know Susan or Jeremy or whoever that we say if if alcohol or drugs i mean let's be clear there's no safe level of drug taking <laughs> so we just take that off the table altogether people <laughs> if alcohol is costing you more than money it's time to have a little look and see why you know if you're reaching for alcohol at the end of the day and you're doing it for a reason that is because you don't know how to de-stress, you don't know how to decompress, you don't know how you're going to face being at home, you don't know how to turn the noise off in your head. These are all not good reasons for drinking. And it's at that point that I wish five, six, seven years ago I'd had the ability, and I knew that there were resources because in fairness I didn't know, but I'd had the ability to realise that about myself and my behaviour. And I genuinely do think that had I had, I would have been able, my end would have been different to where it was. Mm -hmm. Had there been resources and obvious support, had I asked those questions, I don't think I would have gotten to where I did. A, a softer bottom. 100%. And I'm grateful for where it got to me too, because it means that I'm able to now help others from a from a level of utter despair. <laughs> the same time, if I can do if I can do now as much as possible to help anyone else not have to get to the stage I did before they seek help, you know that's that in itself makes it all worthwhile. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that I'm so inspired by that We Recover Loudly is doing and the way that you're setting up that organization 
is that you're focusing on individuals in the industry, how they can support themselves, how they can access different resources. But you're also focusing on like an owner operator perspective of like when one of your employees comes to you and maybe does share that they're in early recovery, what do you do then? How do you best support someone? What are the best things to say? What are your limits as an employer? How can you create a different kind of culture in your in your restaurant? And I think that there's a real gap in knowledge and something that I've been so blown away by in the range of guests that you've had on the We Recover Loudly podcast is the diversity of experience, but also how so many of the people that are speaking to you are in these positions of leadership. And I don't think I ever worked for somebody who was sober. To the very point of We Recover Loudly, the more vocal that folks are, the more that I as a sober person will go seek out those folks as employers. I'd rather put my energy and my weight behind somebody I know truly understands my experience. And I'm wondering about what it was like sort of seeking out individuals to share their stories and what that experience has been like for you. Um, I, um, I don't know if it's, I don't know if I can blame ADHD for this, but I have no, I have no fear when it comes to asking people to do things. Um, but I specifically wanted to, while I wanted the podcast and, and season two, we're going to have a slight evolution, which I'll explain, but I really wanted to focus on having a broad range of stories because everybody's journey and everybody's story is uniquely theirs. And it's all about listening to, you know, we say, listen for the similarities, not the differences. So we have to ensure that we're sharing lots of different similarities because one day, I mean, I spent so long going, well, that's not me. Well, that's not me. Well, that's not me. And the very day, my sobriety date, September 5th, 2021 I was sat in a room completely broken the day after a really serious suicide attempt and somebody spoke about how they looked in the mirror and every day and they hated themselves and it was the first time instead of me thinking well I don't even have a mirror but listening and that was the person that then became my first sponsor and is now a very dear friend. So firstly, it was always about sharing as many stories as I could to hopefully connect as many people. But then the second thing is that I do agree that we have a level of personal responsibility, but as operators, we are not safeguarding our teams. And there are people out there who are in positions where they can make big shifts culturally and they are people that and 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 the changes it has got to come from up here there's no point in us going well gen z aren't drinking as much so we'll wait for them to become in charge like what no <laughs> the people that are in charge like you've just said the older guard you know those people who are in their mid 30s early 40s who are the ops and the bosses now they're the ones that have to make that that change and what we're doing with season two is we're going to go a little bit further with that and start to really look at alcohol. Again, I'm dropping phrases from 12 steps like, no, nobody's business. We say alcohol was never the problem. Drugs were never the problem. They were the solution. So in our industry, what is the huge amount of addiction what is it that the alcohol and the drug usage what is that the solution to and then we kind of look at that behavior and that's where as a culture in an industry we have to make changes whether it is sexual harassment um 
gender um, unfairness between genders? How are we supporting the LGBTQ plus community? How are we supporting people in recovery? Um, people with neurodiversity. There's just so many societal challenges which I do understand exist outside of our industry but in a weird way they feel heightened within it mm-hmm. what are we doing to stop and support and resource and safeguard that those situations because do you know what when we don't 9.9 out of 10 times and again this is not a real statistic but I think it's true it will end either in mental health really bad mental health depression stress which leads to addiction which leads to I mean, really, really, really desperate situation. And we have lost people have lost lives. You know, we know this, you know, Kelly's cause. People lose their lives when there are not enough front-ended supports opposed to us just, you know, always kind of at the back end going, well, oh, well, she's addicted now. Let's give her a, let's give her a program. Let's make sure she can do her AA meeting on a Wednesday at four. What was the drinking the solution to? Let's try and stop that rather, you know? So we're going to be broadening the guests ever so slightly just to kind of bring in some of those um, conversations, really. Mm-hmm. And I, I just like, I want to pick up on something you said in that sense of you look for the similarities, not the differences. And when you do zoom out like that and it's like, what are we treating the folks that are working, I mean, Kelly's cause is a good example, but the folks that are working in mental health in this industry, the folks that are working for gender equity, that are looking for protection for people that are here as immigrants or maybe working illegally, all of those organizations and all of that advocacy is about looking at what the problems actually are. And then each of us sort of work in like the outcome of those, whether that's mental health, addiction, etc. And I feel like it's, easier for people in the industry to take that sort of personal responsibility or be like oh unfortunately they're an addict so this is an issue for this person I'm wondering what the industry response has been since you started working in this space it's been it's been really positive I mean I've not I've yet to have anybody come at me and be like well that's not really an issue there's been nothing but nods of yeah you're right I've had so many people messaging me from my past as well who have worked with me and before and have said thank you I've had people reaching out saying I don't know what to do and 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 I don't know how to to stop and you know I've had some of the chefs that have been on you know like Adam Simmons he is a burnt chef ambassador as well as being um a Michelin star chef and very vocal about his recovery and his relapses from drugs and alcohol. You know, he has now had people reaching out to him to say thank you so much. It's a beautiful ripple effect. Um, Again, that's one of the most incredible things about having a platform where stories can be shared is the way that it ripples. I think anybody that says it is not an issue in in the industry um, is blind. Um, I think anybody who says it's not an issue in their particular establishment, I celebrate and I ask for them, come on the show, let's talk about it. Because what mm. if you're doing something that's working, we need to be shouting out loud about it. Um, and I think one of the biggest keys to change the whole culture around it, again, which is something that we um, need to do from this top level, is rather than 
where we are as an industry in terms of how we deal with non-alcoholic and no and low beverages, that still has a lot of work to do, you know. If we decide to start putting far more emphasis on not only having a bigger range of them to sell to our customers and educating our teams in how to sell them safely and getting excited about them and having competitions and, you know, having somebody going over to the table and being like, oh, I see you're having the scallops. Have you tried this lovely non-alcoholic IPA? Let's start to create that culture around it because you know what? Ripple effect. That's going to start to change the culture at the back because slowly but surely when we start to create a world and an environment where not drinking is not only it's not hidden at the back of the menu by the kids menu it's out in the open and it's celebrated there will be that soft ripple effect as well and again there's been a lot of really positive connection with that statement from people within the industry um there's so many cool things going on. Um, I mean, I had a chat with Ben from the Sober Boozers Club and Andy Mee from um, the Alcohol Free Drink Company. Uh, we did an Instagram Live very recently, which is, um, you can watch it on replay. There's two addicts. I'm so sorry. Can you, can you start that sentence again? <laughs> Absolutely. There's two addicts, so two vocal addicts, sit there talking about non-alcoholic beers like you're sat in bar talking to you know what I mean like the the passion the enthusiasm they're like I'm like I could they were like throwing the bottles through the screen like you must try this and that's just wonderful that's what we want to see more of um and I think if we start doing all of this work in these particular areas I'm hoping that the natural effect will be the culture will start to shift and change it also, I think you touch on something so important, which is that industry people, we are nerds about beer and wine and all of that stuff. So we need somewhere else to put that energy, like getting excited about like an ingredient on a dish, getting excited about an amazing pairing, like all of that is such a thrill. And the idea of giving that up if you're in recovery is such a deterrent because it's like, not only will I have to like stop self-medicating with my substance of choice but also like am I gonna lose these little bits of magic mm. that make my job survivable that make me feel passionate that make me feel joy and it's a big ask and I think that's sort of what differentiates being sober in this industry versus other industries where so much of you eat so much shit, the hours are long, the pays are very, like, we all know the ways that it's hard. And the ways that it's so unbelievable is like, oh my God, this week we got to go out to this vineyard and press grapes and trial this wine and meet with the supplier. And it was amazing. And I tried all these incredible things. And like, and so many of the parts that are so full of joy and enthusiasm are tied in with substance. And I think unless there's alternatives for that, I can understand why so many people I know in recovery have left completely. But I also think that there is such a ingrained assumption that because you're in recovery, you can no longer do the job that you previously mm. did. And I've, I've applied for quite a few bar manager jobs, um, bartending jobs, and, and I've yet to see on the description, can get absolutely fucked up on a Monday, still stop take on a Tuesday. Like that's not part of the job description you know and therefore if we're taking that off the table as being something that we're able to do 
we can still do all of the other things, if not better. And, you know, if you look at alcohol as an allergy, which is a, um, a, uh, a terminology which is, again, used a lot in the wounds of recovery. So if you think about it like an allergy, I'm allergic, let's say, to alcohol, so I cannot taste it. If you want somebody, remember when gluten-free became a real thing and like there was always like one celiac on the team and if a table came in and they were gluten-free, you'd be like, all right, Sharon, you got another. Yeah. You know, like, and, and, and Sharon, who was also, she would come over and she would emphasize, she'd be like, I know, but don't you worry. All of these things you can have and they're delicious and all of that. And you'd sit there and you'd go, fuck, brilliant, that's Sharon. And not only that, you would come back. And you would tell all of your celiac gluten-free friends again and again because you were looked after so well. So rather than seeing sobriety or a bartender or a waiter or a chef, anybody who doesn't drink as being a negative and as being a reason to not hire them or to question their ability, it's a superpower, you know? And just the same way, I always use poor Tom Kerridge as an analogy, just the same as an example, rather, just the same way that poor Tom Kerridge can't have shellfish because he's allergic and it will kill him. He's also an alcoholic, by the way, but it will kill him. At no point did the Michelin board go, oh, not funny, Tom. Did you try this oyster? Because if you didn't, I will not give you the star. No, he's gone. No, I didn't. It will kill me. But my team have. And they said it's delicious. And I also have used my brain and know how to balance yeah. flavors. And do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and yeah, totally. again, I think it's the lazy thing to do with all of this. And it was very much the same for mental health. And it is changing. But again, it feels like sometimes at a very snail pace. The easy thing to do is cut off the problem. So long, Susan. So long, Jeremy. Off you go with your little addict with your mental health problem. Goodbye. It's cheaper that way. That's what we assume. It's cheaper. It's easier. But here we are, 2023, recruitment crisis, you know, escalating costs, nobody coming in to take the brunt of that. And we're saying, well, do you know what? Let's cut the wellness program. Let's not worry about what can we do to support you know let's these are the things that sadly seem to go first and actually these are the things that are going to save your business absolutely i think that such that shift of mentality is vital and feels really essential to survival if you want to keep operating and i mean i've worked for tons of people and none of them were better managers because they were shit-faced all the time yeah literally you know? even though we may like, think so <laughs> um i really want to ask you before we we'll do some quick fire questions at the end but because you're there's so few people doing this advocacy and we recover loudly feels so unique and i think one of the reasons why i've heard so many people talk about it and be excited about it is because it's really the only thing of it that exists as far as i know in terms of really connecting people taking a really intersectional approach to addiction really platforming um diversity of experience there's also and to your point you have people reaching out all the time asking for support thanking you sharing their stories how are you sort of taking care of your own mental health and taking care of your own recovery working in that advocacy space i think when it comes to um recovery when it comes to anything you know let's be clear addiction is a mental health 
condition in as much as your mental health is destroyed. So I don't think you need to treat it any differently from whether or not you have any kind of mental health challenge, which let's be honest, is basically everybody in the whole world because Mm -hmm. none of us are getting through this life unscathed. And so one thing I never had is when I worked in the industry, um, you know, is that we were people, we're people pleasers. We serve others. We don't serve ourselves. And Hence, having now fibromyalgia, it's one of the big causes of that. Is that just constant push till break point? I've now, let's sense, learnt this beautiful word, which is boundaries. <laughs> and um, it's something that, weirdly enough, that when people at work would have boundaries, I'd be like, well, they're awful. They're an awful colleague. Yeah. Um, but yeah. I've actually realised <laughs> the like, power of that. Then- they don't fit in they don't fit in no right we're like they're not management material they're not push time yeah (laughs) and um boundaries have been a massive thing for me and to the point that i've always become addicted to them i'm like saying no to everything even when i want to say yes um but that's been a massive learning curve for me realizing that my self-worth is not based on how depleted and destroyed I am at the end of a day it's actually shock horror the other way around and the more that I look after myself and the stronger my own recovery and my own um kind of mental health is the more I can help other rather than the other I used to think I was a great manager when you were walking over me you know at the end of the shift and I was lying on the floor broken bruised my hair all covered in like you know gum and egg white going thanks for the shift everyone no you take my tips it was all for you you know that for me was like yeah excellent manager she's gonna make it I now very much realize that's not true I stay connected with my 12-step community on a daily basis I have when I was in active addiction when I worked in restaurants I had no friends I had colleagues I had these, I had the family, I'm doing bunny ears, by the way, everyone, I'd had a family, which isn't a real thing. And weirdly enough, when I left, got fired and that job and everything, they were all gone. I had nobody. Now I've got so many friends and connections because of the people I've met in recovery. I also um, do some coaching with the Recovery Coach Academy to make sure that when I am in spaces, when I am supporting people who are in really, really desperate situations that I'm learning all the time how to be able to have these safe conversations. So I'm ensuring that, you know, I'm also kind of upskilling myself, if that makes sense. Um, And to be honest... Every day that I get to sit and talk about the things that I love about our industry and talk about ways that we can make it even more sustainable, well, make it sustainable and make it better, I feel a little piece of my heart and soul is healed. And I think that as long as I get to do that and have that privilege that for me anyway, that shell's being looked after, you know? Totally. We're going to quick fire. Where is your favorite place to travel food-wise? Uh, Tel Aviv. Who is your favorite pop icon? Courtney Love. What? What is the best meal you've had in the past month? I went to Willow um, in Clapham. Mm-hmm. They are amazing they do little plates they come on a board you have brunch you choose your little plates um they have this incredible tender stem broccoli uh which was outstanding and this like banana bread that was covered in cream and syrup and like yeah it was just everything so yeah willows and clapham it's beyond the gauntlet of brunch spots that you have to go through <laughs> it's just down there and more importantly the service was exceptional 
exceptional. I felt like I was in my own house. So yeah, Willows at Clapham. What's your favourite building in London? It's not necessarily a building, but I love Borough Market. I love the architecture. I love the contrast of the industrial side of things and the kind of more old fashioned looking buildings. I also really love brutalist um, architecture. And there is an absolutely horrendously looking um, council estate a structure called Robin Hood Gardens in E14, which technically is one of the ugliest things in the world, but I think it's beautiful. <laughs> okay, the last question, and you can take a little time with this. So I want to know who is your hospitality hero? One person in this industry, maybe you've worked with them, maybe you haven't, maybe you've just eaten their food, whatever it is, um, but somebody who, who you just see and you're like, fuck yeah, you know? Um, millions of people have come to my head. Um, everybody I worked at at Hawksmoor back in the day, and um, Chris from the Burnt Chef, massive inspiration. But I will choose somebody else. Um, this person is called Rebecca Pout. She was um, an ops manager um, when I worked for the diner, which is part of Barworks, and she had a really challenging job in as much as trying to look after all of us general managers. Um, but she always had such a quiet assurance and confidence in the things that she asked us to do and the reason that I love her so much is because I still to this day use so many of the things the tools that she sent me she was the person that told me you're only ever as good as your day off and 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 that's something that may sound really simple but is so true because for me and especially I think a lot of us in the industry our days off are normally spent recovering and that's not okay you know why is your team recovering on their day off, whether it's from drinking drugs or just being exhausted or just eating a normal meal for the first time, you know, like that's not okay. You know, she was really firm about communications um, between 7 p.m. and 7 a.m. We weren't allowed to communicate with the teams, and you know, and ops. We weren't allowed to be pinging emails to each other because the only thing that happens after seven o'clock in a restaurant, you need, you need to get the police or the ambulance. Like, that, that's the only level. And I really loved that, that boundary of respect. And she was firm on it. Um, there's so many other things that she kind of taught me. But I think, yeah, she was definitely the one that really... She also, when I stopped working there, she she pulled me aside and she could quite easily have been very like, you know, you are not functioning very well. You are disappointing. Stop takes are appalling. What's happening? All of this stuff. And she always kind of held a compassion and understanding rather than blame. She was, however, tied, you know, like it was a case of like, well, you can't work here. Goodbye. Um but I always really appreciated the fact that she tried to lead that interaction with compassion. Um, mm. And I do think that that conversation would have ended differently these days because there would be more. This is like eight, nine years ago. I mean, there was like nothing in place back then, uh, seven years ago. So, yeah, she's an absolute hero. I think she now works in um, a small kind of natural wine, amazing restaurant in Cardiff. I'm not in touch with her anymore, but she's somebody that I regularly quote <laughs> and therefore has definitely had the big a big impact on my um on my yeah on my life my career and the way that I kind of move through 
the world of hospitality now. I really, before I let you go into the rest of your day, I really want to give some space for you to talk about what We Recover Loudly is up to right now, what is coming up in the next year. We will link to your website, the podcast, Instagram, in the show notes of this episode. I really encourage everyone to go and check them out. You guys are doing incredible things, but tell us what is coming up and what's going on. Okay, so much fun stuff. So, We Recover Loudly Season 2 is coming out, depending on when this episode is coming out, but should be starting. Um, the first episode will be out during... Addiction Awareness Week, which is going to be the 3rd of November. Um, Addiction Awareness Week, 28th of October till the 4th of November. We will be doing something every single day that week, whether it's uh, chatting to somebody, dropping a special bonus episode, there's going to be some resources. So that's very exciting. Um, We Recover Loudly is going to always remain a community, a space where people can share stories. The website is almost up and running where we have got guest blogs. We have got resources. We've got links to lots of different organizations. Um, The podcast will carry on going strong. The new side of the business is Hospitality Raw. So we've decided to keep We Recover Loudly as that community space and rather have that as a social enterprise project um, which means that we won't be making money from it because I do believe that that side of kind of help needs to always be um, affordable or accessible sorry to all but I also think that there is some big work that we can be doing in the industry um, to make really good, massive changes. Hospitality Raw is a company, a consulting company where we can come in and we offer different services. So we have uh, addiction awareness training, we have workshops, we are going in and doing alcohol safe workplace structured um, mentoring programs. We are doing consultancy for no and low uh, menus. We are doing education around no and low menus there's loads of stuff going on all of that's going to be launched officially in 2024 but we are already taking inquiries and stuff so that's really exciting so what we're going to have now is hospitality raw your one-stop shop for all training and consulting needs when it comes to addiction awareness safeguarding and no and low education we recover loudly we've got the platform where people will still be sharing their stories um, and their experiences and free resources and finally by the end of the year we recover loudly will be doing their weekly online meetings so if you are looking for support in a safe anonymous space um, much like um, the way talk clubs and you know the AA meetings and all that structured um, again if you come onto the website follow us on socials we'll be announcing when those are starting very very soon Shell, thank you so, so much. As always, you are a bastion of knowledge, your wisdom and your experience and what you're doing in this industry is just unmatched and it's just a pleasure. Oh, thank you. It's also a massive pleasure um, to speak to you and thank you so much. Beyond the Path is produced by Kelly's Cause. For more information about Kelly's Cause, please head to kellyscause.com or find us on Instagram at kellyscause.com.